Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. Today we continue our discussion of Aristotle's On the Soul. We are particularly interested in activities such as thinking, teaching, and learning. Aristotle claims that a thinking being is not properly altered by the thinking activity. How, then, does the soul function when one is taught to think? Join us as we think through this problem. And now here is Alex with the opening question. Hey, that's me. wanted to take us to this paragraph after 417b in uh, chapter 5. It begins, But being acted upon is not unambiguous either. In one sense, it is a partial destruction of a thing by its contrary, but in another it is instead the preservation by something that is at work staying itself of something that is in potency and is like it in the way that a potency is like its corresponding state of being at work, staying itself. For the one who has knowledge comes to be contemplating, and this is either not a process of being altered, since it is a passing over into being oneself, namely into being at work, staying oneself, or is a different class of alteration. This is why it is not right to say that a thinking being, when it thinks, is altered, any more than a house builder is altered when he is building a house. So the leading of one who contemplates and thinks into being fully at work from being in potency is not teaching, but it is right for it to have a different name given to it. And the one who, out of being in potency, learns and acquires knowledge by the action of one who is fully at work and is disposed in the way we call teaching, either ought not to be said to be acted upon, or one must say there are two ways of being altered, the one a change to a condition of lacking something, the other a change to an active condition and into a thing's nature. So I was kind of puzzled by the example of the teacher that the leading of one who contemplates and thinks into being fully at work from being in potency is not teaching, but is right for it to have a different name given to it. So... I think like a simple formulation of the question is like, what is the meaning of Aristotle making this distinction that it's not teaching, but it has to be called something talking about potential and being acted upon. So how can we parse that out? And both the house builder and the thinking being are being offered a sort of analogies or examples to explain the principle of being acted upon of the senses specifically 
so in the, the analogy of the house builder, what's the thing that's being acted upon? It's the house or the house builder? It's the, the building materials. Yeah, I believe it's not not the house right. builder. The house builder is supposedly right. not altered. Right. So the house builder corresponds to the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. The, house, so. the house build the material. No, 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 no. The house builder corresponds to the thinking being. Okay. Well, so... yeah. Because, I mean, they're in the they're in like the same sentence. This thinking being house builder. Okay. So they're they're let's say they're there's the thing being acted upon. There's the thing acting. There's the teacher and the thing be in the student learner and then the learner sure and then there's the house builder and the house Mm -hmm. right so are those those the right terms is the the thing being altered it seems is always the the medium he talks about he has that really bizarre claim um at 224b10 the same thing is also clear from this. Neither light and dark nor sound nor smell does anything to bodies, but that in which they are. For instance, it is the air the thunder is in that splits the tree. So it's like somehow the, the power, the movement is going on in the medium of the air. With the house builder, the movement is, or the alteration, I should be saying, is taking place in the materials and not in the house builder or the knowledge of the thinker. Those are just potencies that are then somehow, you know, being expressed. Right. So the point seems to be something like, okay, so I'm potentially a house builder now. And let's say I go out tomorrow and I start building a shack in the backyard. I am then actually a house builder, but that's not a fundamental alteration in me. Um, I mean, it's a change from potentiality to actuality, but it's not an alteration in any permanent sense mm-hmm. right because the potential to be a house builder was already in your nature beforehand mm-hmm. right so if you think about the eye right my eye sees an ocean then it sees a mountain then it sees a table all of those perceptions were potentially in my eye but my eye doesn't change when it sees those it goes from potentially seeing to actually seeing but there's not any fundamental change in the i guess structure of the eye itself i'm now going beyond aristotle trying to state it in maybe different language which may or may not work yeah i think the eye example is a little bit clearer but the the house builder one is still a little tricky to me because i think i think he's assuming that you've already gained the capacity the skill to be a house builder in this mm-hmm. example but like in the nick making ethics he says over and over and over again that you have to do the thing and habituate yourself <laughs> so that you then have the character of house building but it's like he wants to reserve this sort of like tier where you somehow cross some threshold where you actually become a house builder all the Mm -hmm. other times that you've participated in house building you've just been on your way to house building but i think here the presupposition is that this is already a genuine house Mm -hmm. builder which kind of goes back to that distinction between knowledge and contemplation that he was wanting to make so So like yeah as i sit here and i learn right? I'm gaining the potential to be someone who contemplates. And then right. at some point, sort of following Paul's schema, which I think is right, some point I pass the threshold and I'm now somebody who has, has enough knowledge that I have the capacity to contemplate. But I don't contemplate 
you know, day and night, right, which he also talks about in the Nicomachean Ethics, nobody can contemplate all the time, <laughs> right? But at some point, I become somebody capable of contemplation, and then, and that's a capacity that knowledge has instilled in me. And then I can go from having being a potential contemplator to an actual contemplator, which would correspond to the house builder. But when I go from potentially contemplating to actually com- contemplating, I'm not changing right. it in a fundamental way, structural way. But there's also the contemplation of your own ability to contemplate, right? Or like the awareness of yourself as a being with a, the capacity to contemplate. Because he, he brings in that in the next, that's in the next paragraph after what Alex just read. Well, I guess I'll just read it. 417b20, in the potency for perception, the first change comes about by the action of the parent. And when the living thing is born, it already has what it takes to perceive just as it has the capacity for knowledge. So when a living thing, let's say when a living, when a human is born, it already has the capacity to be a house builder, right? Being at work, perceiving is described in the same way as contemplating, but differs in that the things that produce the being at work of perceiving are external, the visible and audible things, and similarly with the rest of the senses. So you are not in control of seeing and hearing you have to see and hear something else and that something else has to be is external to you and has to be outside of you and outside of your control in some way the reason that the active perception is of particulars will knowledge of universals which are in some way the soul itself so that seems like a really important claim that we should talk about right that's like kind of the central claim of this whole section hence thinking is up to oneself whenever one wishes but perceiving is not up to oneself since it is necessary the thing proceed be present. I was just saying. And similarly too, even the kinds of knowing that deal with perceptible things are not up to oneself. And for the same reason that the perceptible things are among particular external things. So the kind of thinking that is up to oneself has a kind of, right, self-conscious, like internal quality, right? That's contemplation, right? So the latter kind of kinds of knowing dealing with perceptible things is like, okay, if I want to know about a butterfly, I have to go find a butterfly. If I can't find a butterfly, I can't find that knowledge. I can't. Right. But the essence of the human potential is that it moves immediately from mm-hmm. particulars to universals. Right. That's, that's like that. I don't think animals are supposed to be doing that. Right? That's just, that's, that is what humans do exclusively in Aristotle's conception. I'm sure. I mean, we haven't gotten to the section on the intellectual soul yet, but I mean, I imagine he'll go in great depth about a claim he's previewing here, which is kind of his style, right? He'll sort of say it, and then several chapters later, he'll unpack what it really means. I mean, and we know enough that we can we can and should think through this moment anyway. But I also think I want to put on the table that he definitely has a lot more to say about this relationship, this, the move from the particular to the universal. Yeah, I was trying to think about the, the statement that... that universals are in some sense the soul itself is yeah yeah while knowledge is of universals which are in some way in the soul itself i wonder if that preposition in i guess we don't have the greek with us right now well, i yeah, think being... it's going to end up being the case that at first you move from particulars to universals but mm-hmm. once you have the universal right like kind of like the butterfly example you understand the universal butterfly and now you go and apply it to particulars and you can do that better and worse depending on the kind of person you are. And that's kind of the Aristotelian thing is that the forms access to the forms is through the particulars. You don't contemplate them directly. Yeah. At least at first. I mean, over and over he has, he has a statement here, which he also has in the metaphysics that like 
we start from that which is close to us and less well known in order to get to that which is far from us but more knowable that's the move right he, he does that kind of the... thing over and over again right that the particulars seem clear but are actually obscure and the universals seem obscure but are actually much clearer when you reflect on them yeah. well i mean that's yeah that's literally why like book two is like a step into the universalization of perceptions which is of particulars so that then he can get to contemplative life which is going to be more of the universal so like this Mm -hmm. is already one of those steps along that dialectic i think that's i think we should just throw that out i mean it's obvious but like here we're almost exclusively dealing with the perceptive part of the soul right we've we've left behind the nutritive part that part's not Mm -hmm. that interesting anyway that's of plants and then we want to get to the contemplative, but we got to understand the relationship between the perceptive life and the intellectual life. And so we got to make sense of the perceptive soul before we can get to the contemplative soul. Right. And it, that's, I think that's really helpful to say, Paul. And another way of saying that is that with the exception of like the digression that Alex brought us to right here, basically everything in book two is we would share with a dog or a cow or whatever, Right. We're still in the realm of that animal, as it were. Well, so that that's one question I had, because there's that really interesting part where he talks about we seem to have like a very keen sense of touch, which seems to put us like above the animals and like is almost like gives us our intellectual. Do you guys remember that where that was? I meant to make note of it. 10 somewhere, chapter 10 somewhere. I'm not sure where. Anyway, I'll yeah, it was really actually surprising for me to to read that he was saying touch was the essential or central human sense. You just kind of assume, I think, that it would be sight, but it's not. According to him, it's not. Oh, it's it's chapter nine. It's at the very bottom of the first paragraph. For in the other senses, the human being is left behind by many of the animals, but with respect to touch, he is precise in a way that greatly surpasses the rest and this is why he is the most intelligent of the animals this is why he is the most that's a really strong claim a sign of this is that within the human race being naturally well or badly endowed with intelligence depends on the organ of this sense and not on the others for those with tough skin are badly equipped by nature for thinking but those with tender skin are well equipped (laughs) we're all, we're I, all, I, we're I just all have tender a, skin yeah, i just have a big question mark there i was like i get my reading right now this, yeah. this episode of the key to all mythology brought to you by uh, nibia yeah. lotion oh my gosh we should change the name of the podcast like tender skin or something <laughs> <laughs> tender skins forever uh, um, the, t- the tender boys uh, yeah yeah <laughs> soft soft hands yeah. <laughs> just uh just one thing about about the universals being in the soul and sort of relating it back to the teaching claim i wondered if it had something to do with the theory of recollection i mean we mm. know that's a platonic theory that we read in the mino dialogue and i wasn't sure that uh that aristotle really like took up that line of thinking from Plato. I always thought Aristotle you know, moved in his own direction, but of course he owes certain things to Plato. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think he, but, I think he yeah. definitely is reliant on something like the theory of recollection. I mean, obviously, it greatly depends on how we understand what Plato means by that, which is right. obviously not easy. But I mean, even if you think of what like habits are, aren't they just like a calling back towards memories that we've on, we're on our way to developing? I think that's what character ultimately ultimately mm-hmm. is: is you you do something over and over and over that such that you develop a memory and are able to recollect to it every time that you're put in a certain kind of situation i'm brave mm-hmm. because i've acted bravely in the past you know and certainly he thinks that you come into the world with a set of potentials or dispositions or something and that, that mm-hmm. is related to the rec theory of recollection so i'm, I'm going to read right. this sentence again 417 b10 so the leading of one who contemplates okay so one who contemplates somehow leads what does that word lead me mean there so the leading of one who contemplates and thinks into being fully at work from being in potency is not teaching. So it's like he's addressing some sort of claim that some sort of claim wherein people would say, his contemporaries or whatever would say something like, well, the telos of thinking is teaching or something like that. So the leading, presumably of a student, the leading of one who contemplates and thinks into being fully at work from being in potency is not teaching, but it is right for it to have a different name given to it. So it seems like he's inserting himself into some sort of controversy, but the terms are not totally clear. And the one who, out of being in potency, this is the student, learns and acquires knowledge by the action of one who is fully at work and is disposed in the way we call teaching, either ought not to be said to be acted upon, which makes me think about the medium thing that Paul was bringing up, or we, or one must say there are two ways of being altered. The one, a change to a condition of lacking something. So the question is, in what way does the contemplator, when he does his activity, act in such a way that he creates a lack in the student? The other, a change to an active condition into a thing's nature. Or does the teacher in such a way act upon the student that he alters him into some sort of active condition? And I am just trying to read it and explicate it out loud. I'm actually more puzzled than I was before. But do you guys have any, I mean, I incline toward the, the latter, the, the active condition that seems to be resonant with the idea of, uh, achieving one's potency, making a potency actual, but this idea about leading or, or not teaching. It's interesting because the theory of recollection seems to suggest drawing out things that are inherent in the in the Mm -hmm. human soul and the soul is what we're inquiring about here in aristotle's work and so for him to say talk about leading i thought was interesting because if i remember from the uh geometry demonstration in mino uh socrates convinces his interlocutor that he didn't lead the boy through the the proof but he doesn't ask leading questions. He doesn't say he doesn't lead him through. He just says he doesn't teach him anything. He just reveals to him what he already knows. But he, I mean, take kind of brings him there, right? Right. Yeah, and the the right. already knows thing there is really important, right? Because I think that's really akin to potency here. Mm-hmm. So I think the teacher is a being at work of something it, you're demonstrating, and then the the learner with the potency then mimics you in what you're doing and then eventually is able to gain something similar to that being at work i mean it, assuming that they do it enough and you've 
done it well yourself. I think mm-hmm. he's assuming here the teacher is doing it well. But what's so strange about it, in the paragraph Adam just read, right, or the next paragraph, right, the baby, according to Aristotle, is born with the capacity for knowledge. So the baby has the capacity for knowledge, but not the actuality. And then a teacher comes along and turns that capacity for knowledge into an actuality. But when that knowledge becomes an actuality, it then becomes a potency instantly, right? It becomes the potency for contemplation, right? It's not actually an actuality. It's then a potency to, you know, build a house or to contemplate or whatever, right? And that's, I think, what is sort of strange about trying to think through this is that because when you brought up the idea of potentiality, Alex, I was thinking like an active condition because like activity and potency are opposed in some way, but they're also in some sort of relationship also that I can't quite suss out specifically in this case. It does. It's not complicated to say the acorn has the potency to become an oak tree and then it actually becomes an oak tree, right? But knowledge has the potency or the human has the potency for knowledge, which when it becomes actual becomes the potency for contemplation. That's, I think, I don't even know if I'm thinking about it right, but that's how I'm understanding it at the moment. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it does. Can you just restate the question again? I, I missed a word. Or yeah, yeah. I don't really know that I asked a question, but I was saying, I think the difficult thing is that before you gain knowledge, right? When you're the baby and you just have the capacity or the potency for knowledge, it is a potency. Once the teacher, however, he does that, actualizes that potential for knowledge, the potential for knowledge becomes then actualized knowledge becomes the potency for contemplation, right? So it's almost like it, in some ways, what was an actuality becomes like, it's like a building block becomes the potency for something else. I mean, that seems to correspond to a lot of other Aristotelian ideas though, right? About like the, there's some part of the soul that all living things share in plants, animals, and humans, right? And then the plants have it in some limited degree, or I guess he, he would say plants have no perceptual experiences at all, right? Or experiences or plants just don't perceive anything. They can grow and they can get hot and cold and they can respond to their environment, but they, they aren't seeing, they aren't hearing, they aren't smelling, right? And then animals, they have everything plants have and then they have some other thing, other qualities too that plants don't have, right? That are, and then humans are in the same position, right? And then there's like a, I mean, I think he would say there's a quality humans have there's a potency humans have that's additional to all the potencies they share with other with plants and animals right and even with other humans and it takes like teaching and good fortune to make that potency actual and that is like the one that's one step closer to the divine or something that's or whatever however he would put it but that seems like that makes sense to me from an aristotelian perspective right does that do you see what i mean does that make sense to you I think so. <laughs> I mean, you can, I, you can say no. I don't know that I know. I, 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 yeah, it does. I, I think I'm just still wondering about like, again, why, why does he care enough to like make this comment about teaching specifically and the relationship between the teacher and the student, which it's kind of, I mean, it's not the main point of this book, but it is a sort of interesting thing to dwell on. I think Alex's intuition is right that the, he's some, cause plate, Socrates, of course, right, is is the, the great teacher and certainly somebody Aristotle has in mind in what way he's sort of positioning himself with this comment on teaching in what way he's positioning himself relative to 
Socrates is interesting. And I think what Alex was saying, I'll just repeat what I was understanding is that Aristotle seems to be wanting to problematize the idea that the teacher is directly influencing the student. And that seems to have something to do with a sort of slightly different way of thinking about recollection. But he's thinking of it in terms of just as the mountain that I see does not directly act on my eye, neither does the teacher directly act on the student, but awakens the innate capacity in the student. And again, we don't know the, the controversies in Athens at the time or who Aristotle's arguing with or whatever, but uh, he seems to think that that's important to sort of stress at this point. And maybe we can't take it beyond there with the text we have at hand, but. Yeah, I mean, wrap, I'm willing wrap to wrap up what, what I thought we were saying. Go ahead. Well, I'm willing to throw out there like the sophists are probably in mind here. And I think that they probably don't have this this attitude towards the teaching. They I think they probably think of themselves as just disseminating information. They're they're paid mm-hmm. for their knowledge mm-hmm. and all their task is to give it to them, which is not Aristotle's just right about this. That's not, you know, creating a learner, that's creating a, a pupil, perhaps, or a yeah, yeah. or someone a follower even. I think Aristotle's in every work he writes, he's concerned with your relationships with your fellow man and what it is to create good citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think this is another moment where he's trying to, I mean, he was a teacher himself as well. We shouldn't forget that. But I think that's that's always on Aristotle's mind. I mean, I think that's why he says like the Nicomachean ethics is a political work. And it's not very obvious why that's a political work unless you think of political in a very general sense mm-hmm. and i think something can be said about that here too i mean this is a little bit less obviously um practical and or like you know applicable yeah, <laughs> in yeah. everyday life as the nicomachean ethics is but i mean you know we, it's not hard to imagine how how it could be useful to know something about how the soul functions and like where you're standing in the hierarchy of beings is which i think is largely at stake here I think that's helpful, Paul. And it's now making me think like, I mean, he made a big deal about like, the soul does not move. Right. And one of the one of the forms of movement is, of course, alteration. Right. And it seems like in some way, this little aside is interested in preserving. Well, and again, I, I said this last week, right. Aristotle takes it for granted that the soul is like eternal and immutable and, and higher than material things. He doesn't hasn't quite tried to prove that yet as far as I can tell but um in some way right he's trying maybe perhaps he's trying to protect the integrity of the soul in the sense of imagine I'm a sophist and I come to Adam and I say pay me such and such amount of money and I can shape your soul right I can like in some unmediated way touch it it all of a sudden is in the world of things in a way that I think Aristotle would be deeply uncomfortable with and I mean, in a certain sense, right, and you can imagine I, I, if medieval Christians read this, I mean, they did, they probably would have seen something about like, oh, Aristotle doesn't have the words for it, but he's rec- recognizing the imago Dei or the innate dignity of man or that, you know, no man can ever own another man's soul or something. I mean, again, maybe I'm stretching this little passage to his breaking point, but it does seem that now that kind of we thought about it and what you just said, Paul, it seems that the sort of integrity of the soul is at stake if the teacher can sort of so easily and in an unmediated way change it, alter it. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think it's it's about giving or helping someone along the way to develop their capacities on their own. And I think that is in 
that is immensely important in terms of creating good citizens because I don't think the sophists care about that. And, um, and if they're right about their mode of education, they're not, they're not helping make good people, even if they might be giving people like fun trivia facts or something like that. I think there is a preservation going on here. I think he's deeply worried about the state of things and, you know, falling into decadence, decay. So the teacher is not, yeah, I mean, just to reiterate just one more time, the teacher's not giving the student any capacities, just drawing it out. And that's, that's an indirect, that's not in Aristotle's sort of thinking about movement, that's not directly moving the soul, but it's sort of in the way that like, <laughs> I used this example a couple of weeks ago, right? If I, through my eyes, perceive a beautiful person, a beautiful woman, and I run towards them, in one sense, in one sense that moved me in like a colloquial sense, but really it's like my soul took in that perception and then my soul moved my body, but my soul was not moved itself. If I'm understanding Aristotle correctly is how he'd want to talk about it because the movement, as soon as you ascribe, as soon as you say the soul can move, then it loses this, this special status that he wants it to have. Well, it's also like, it can't, like you were saying before, it can't be, have some quality added to it or something right mm-hmm. like that's the importance of it. you can't learn in that sense because that's a kind of a growing right and as soon as you say it's growing then after you're going to say it decays too mm-hmm. as soon as it admits of growth it admits of decay that would be the aristotelian line i think right which then bring, brings us very much back to the idea of recollection yeah that alex suggested i think very rightly yeah because he wants to say that in the potency for perception, the first change comes about by the action of the parent. And when the living thing is born, it already has what it takes to perceive, just as it has the capacity for knowledge. Being at work, perceiving is described the same way as contemplating. So, right. The, so the capacity for knowledge is separated from any particular object of knowledge there, right? Yes. In the same way that the capacity to perceive is separated from any object of perception. Yes, but but then also the capacity for knowledge is only activated through the mediation of particulars. Right. Right. And, I mean, in the, like on a really like mundane level, what is, what is he saying? Well, in order to think, you need to have something to think about. But once you have something to think about, you can go like well beyond the thing you're thinking about. But the capacity itself requires the, requires the universals, right? Like that has to come... Like to think correctly, or to, to contemplate a particular requires you to be able to compare it in some meaningful way to other particulars. And that mm-hmm. already implies that there's a universals. So you mm-hmm. understand, intuitively understand the presence of universals, right? Right. But so we have the capacity of knowledge. We, we innately have the capacity for knowledge. And knowledge is of universals. So I would actually reverse your formula and say it this way. In order to think about the universal, you need to have access to some particulars. But once you do that, nobody, nobody needs to. And so the teacher, right, can impart knowledge of particulars to you. Mm-hmm. But he cannot impart knowledge of universals, but he can set you up so that your soul can activate mm-hmm. the potency for contemplation of the universal. Mm-hmm. Which maybe we were saying the same thing, but that's does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that's sounds good. I mean, that's right out of Mino, I think. Then, right? uh-huh. 
that's what Alex was saying in the first place. Well, I've been thinking as a side note, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm teaching 10th graders Paradise Lost and I sort of came in trying to do the St. John's thing with them of like, what do you think about this? And it's like, there's nothing in their head about this. I just need to like put stuff in their heads. And so, you know, I'm like moving to the direct instruction, like notice this, notice this, notice this, isn't that interesting? And what I've noticed is like, I do that for like a couple of days and then we have like a really good conversation. <laughs> but, but to ask, you know, I'm like noticing all these particulars and then all of a sudden they're sort of making all these connections. But the problem is they just don't have any of that stuff with regards to literature, right? Not period, but at least with regards to Milton or whatever, they don't have any of that in their head until I sort of access it. But I think what yeah. you're doing there, though, right, just to go back to the teaching thing is like you're giving you're giving them an example that they can then mimic. Right. Because yeah. it's like oh, you're like almost teaching them what it is to read something closely. You notice things. <laughs> you you think to make no observations yeah. about those things. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. But I mean, you know, especially younger kids like that, they're not fully formed. Mm-hmm they 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 probably need that like higher level of you know attention and 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 hand-holding i suppose i i would venture to guess like once you have developed enough that level of hand-holding is probably not as helpful yeah that's right and that's the threshold you're talking about yeah but i also think and i mentioned a couple weeks ago aristotle is the proto-phenomenologist right um the the one of the big ideas of Husserl is intentionality and like all thinking is thinking about something. And like, you can kind of see like how Aristotle sort of thinking towards something like that. Um, and it was like, I mean, at the time, whatever, 1905 or whatever, it was like revolutionary to like state it in that way. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't have enough of a sense to know why what Husserl was doing was, I mean, I don't see how that's any different than what Aristotle is saying here. Really? I guess I don't think Husserl talked about universals, but no, he did. He was just more Kantian. He's just he he applies it all to consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like phenomenology of consciousness, whereas I think Aristotle is much more embodied. And mm-hmm. I don't know how much Husserl really studied Aristotle. I mean, I think he probably did, of course. But um, his teacher and his teacher was like a uh, Aristotle scholar. So surely he was aware of it. But Heidegger, I mean, the, the move in phenomenology from Husserl to Heidegger is precisely radicalized because it it goes be, be behind the consci- consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that is I think Heidegger is much more in line with Aristotle, at least the way that we're thinking about it. And partly mm-hmm. because Joe Sachs writes it that way. <laughs> right. Well, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, I mean, Husserl's whole project was Kant's categories are interesting. He comes to them via reason. I want to, via experience, attending to experience, I want to reconstruct the, he would say, the transcendental consciousness. In other words, by attending to my experience, I can ground Kant's categories on experience rather than rationality. Something like that. Is that mm. roughly right, Paul? Uh, yeah. And, then, and yeah, Heidegger it, leaves that behind. Yeah. Or, no, or it goes beyond it, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's a way, definitely a good way of putting that. And that gets extremely complicated, of course. And we're not reading Husserl, but... And he is not fun to read, not even a little bit. <laughs> no, I mean, he's just an analytic philosopher at the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> it really yeah, is. The crisis of the European sciences or whatever that was, the crisis of man, the European sciences and the crisis of man. That was kind of interesting. I remember thinking that was interesting, but it, you know, it's been a long time. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, but I tried to no, get those, but those, but those came after Heidegger wrote Being in Time. It's like Husserl's then like regrouping and having uh, to like okay. write to his student. But no, like the logical, the logical investigations. Oh my God. They're so yeah, I know people always talk about how bad that is. I've never read me of that. But. He spends like, like, I think it's like 60 pages just trying to give a description of what it's like for a sound to hit the ear, like a single sound, not like, a, you know, I don't even know if you can say it's a note. Um, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, it's so tedious, but he, it's because he's doing this thing where he's somehow he gets at experience by bracketing off a certain chunk of the experience in this mm-hmm. example, the sound. So it ends up being like just as abstract as Kant and not mm-hmm. nearly as concrete as he seems to think he's being. So anyway, <laughs> I digress. Well, and last word on her stroll, right? They, right. The reduction was like, we can bracket out all of our shared, all of our sort of cultural baggage in order to attend to the experience and uh merlot ponty says the biggest thing Herschel taught us is that we can't bracket we can't bracket out the like <laughs> fundamental things and we have to like i don't know anyway i'm getting beyond myself it's been too long since i thought about that stuff but well and that's why aristotle's so great right because it seems like he already kind of intuitively knew that because like what does he do he precisely starts with the tradition that he's inherited he goes into the social inheritances uh, yeah i think aerosol's really way ahead of some of those modern thinkers yeah i think he recognizes that you cannot start from a there's no you can't start from like a view from nowhere or something mm-hmm. right you cannot start from a totally objective perspective you have to start from wherever you are both spatially but also you know historically and, mm-hmm. totally. and socially and that's is this a good uh, place to get into the conversation about the usefulness of reading something that in a lot of ways is pretty outdated at least in terms of a scientific point of view yeah sure i think to be specific about that what do you guys think about this idea that if you put something directly on the organ of sensation you cannot sense it that was so weird to me i was like (laughs) i was like experimenting on myself i was like if i put something on my eyes i could see them i put like something smelly on my nose i could smell it like what the hell is he talking about well no because you can't you're not seeing the book if the Mm. book is placed directly above to your eye right you need the medium you're seeing something i'm seeing something you're seeing something sure but you're not seeing the object that it is, are you? If someone I mean, I like, if I if, if I'm someone puts a blow, never, yeah, okay. If I don't know what a book is, and I wake up and there's it's the blue blur on my face, I guess I, I understand that you're not gonna understand, you're not gonna process mm-hmm. it as a book. Yeah, I see that. I, I, I think was with e- smell. It's a little weirder though. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, if someone puts a dead fish on my nose, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna know like a dead <laughs> animal is on my nose. I think I don't, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't go that far, but it's like a stinky uh-huh. thing is going to stink if it's right on your face. I was I was quite puzzled by that too, Adam. And I think probably the way to understand it for reading generously, I think what he's saying is like, wow, isn't it amazing that it's not necessary to touch a fish to your nose to smell it? It's not necessary to touch a mountain to your but, eye. But he's 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 linking that point to the idea that the skin is the medium of touch and the organ of touch is your brain. That's why the touch is what makes you smarter than animals, right? That's so it's a kind of a serious claim. It's not just like, mm-hmm. you know, for him, it's like an important point. He spent a lot of time talking about it. And I thought it yeah, was, yeah. I, I was puzzled. <laughs> I mean, the thing with the, with, with water and how you can't, you're not, there's always water between two objects that, that are touching in water. And there's always air between two things that are touching in air. That's kind of interesting. I mean, that's like, you know, I, 
appreciated that as like a thoughtful nuance. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. As like a, I appreciate how how Aristotle is always uh, enlivening your awareness of the world. I I think it's like it's really charming how he's always coming to like concepts that don't have words he's like we have to come up with a new word for this because no one's ever tried to define this concept before but you know we've thought our way here and now i have to invent a word to describe it like that's really a virtue of his his philosophy but mm-hmm. uh, well, i think right. what paul said i think is and i'm kind of looking for one of the passages where he talks about touching touching to your senses sense organs but i think what i mean i think a productive way to think about this and then i think we probably should shift to thinking about the use of thinking about or reading a sort of outdated scientific theory. But I think the thing Paul brought up was the medium and the medium is so important, right? There's always a medium required for sensing. And that I think is the sort of most interesting idea. But I don't know, does anyone have a passage that we should? Well, and it's almost like he's trying to get at what the appropriate medium is too, right? Because I think even like the smell thing, like I think that's a good point, Adam, but it's, it would be inappropriate to just like stick your face in a smelly thing. You know, like the other day, my dog shit on the carpet and it got everywhere. And it was like, well, do I need to like stick my nose in it to understand what has gone on? It's like, no, I have the medium of air and I smell it. Something's wrong. There's a problem that needs to be taken care of. It's like, that's, I mean, that's, that's the appropriate response, right? There'd be something wrong with you if you went your nose in it to do some sort of scientific research or something. Well, maybe not, but <laughs> I don't know. You get my point. I guess we could, maybe we could instead read the, some of the passages about transparent. I, that was like, to me, the thing that I did not understand what he was trying to say. So you want to read the beginning of chapter seven? That's where he talks about the transparent as transparent. That to me was like the most sure, baffling, go for it. baffling part of the reading. So this is the chapter seven, the beginning of chapter seven and onward. He says, that to which sight is directed is the visible. And this is both color and something which one can put in words, though it happens to be without a name. So here again, he's, he's discovering something that's unnamed before him. What we mean will be clear to those who read on. What is visible in color, and this applies to that which is visible in its own right, not in every kind of thing it's, it itself is in its own definition, because it has in itself the cause of its being visible. And every color has the potency to set in motion what is actively transparent. And this is the nature of color. And for that reason, it is not visible without light, but of each thing, every color is seen in light. Hence, one must first say what light is. Now there is such a thing as the transparent. By transparent, I mean what is visible, but not visible in its own right, to put it simply, but on account of the color of something else. Air and water and many solid bodies are of this sort. It is not in so far as it is water or air that each of them is transparent, but because there is some nature inherent in them that is the same in both of them and in the everlasting body in the upper region of the cosmos. So he's saying there's something, there's some relationship between the sun and color and light. And light is the being at work of the transparent as transparent. A very strange sentence. And in that, in which it is, there is in potency darkness and light is the being at work of the transparent as transparent and in that in which it is there is in potency darkness light is a sort of color of the transparent whatever it is at work staying transparent 
by the action of fire or something of that kind, such as the body in the upper region, for something present in this is one and the same with fire. So I think he's just, so the problem, right, is that once light goes away, there's still something like visibility, right? Like fire can make something visible. And I, so I think there's gotta be this third thing between the viewer and light that, that sort of holds that possibility. Mm-hmm. So like light is like almost like the being at work of the transparent, but the transparent is like the potency of light or something like that. I might be misusing that, but that was how I was thinking about it. And I thought it was helpful. So the transparent is the medium between how does color fit into that scheme? Color is just what is revealed when, when light hits something that has. So, color. And, and every color has the potency to set in motion what is actively transparent. So I have my hand and my eyes, right? My hand is tan or whatever. And between my hand and my eyes, there is something your transparent. Is your hand is sick, sickly pale. Come on. Soft, <laughs> soft handed. I would like the viewer to know that. <laughs> um, so between my hand and my eye, right? I'm sitting here, I'm looking at it. And between my hand and my eye, there is the transparent. And the color in my hand sets in motion the actively transparent, which then I think is what affects my eye well so why doesn't you say air then what i don't understand the mean need for the word transparent what is the transparent doing by transparent i mean what is visible but not visible in its own right so if there's no hand there i mean we can't imagine a blank space but if i could just look out forever i wouldn't see anything right but then i think it's like okay so you see my hand here and somehow seeing my hand i not only see the color of my hand but the transparent between my hand and my sensory organ is also somehow transparent <laughs> I don't adam, adam is, is I, don't, I don't understand incredulous <laughs> um so you're saying he's, he's saying there's something and light is the being at work of the transparent as transparent so there's something the transparent which has the potency to become light is that right Mm-hmm. and in that in which it is there is in potency darkness and it's the contrary of darkness and transparent is the mean between the light and the dark i think so i think that's why it can't be air because because you still hear things when it's dark right and so like the the light uh-huh. is not acting on air in the same way that it is on the um transparent Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So when trans, when trans, so if you imagine transparency as like, so like fissure and water, we're in transparency, right? And transparency, when it's active, there's light. And, and when it's at work saying itself, colors can act on it to act on our sensory organs. And when it is just like the house builder is not always building a house, right? When transparency is in potential, but not actuality, then color can no longer act on it. Which is to say, right, transparency is always around us, but only when it's active can color act on it. Well said. Yeah, hmm. I think that's helpful. So you you think he's thinking of transparency as just kind of like ether, like ether that we're just no. suspended in? Huh. When I think, I think the question, so I, it's always helpful to think like, what is the question Aristotle is trying to answer? And the question is, okay, I don't need to press my hand to my eye to see what color it is. So like, how does the color in my hand arrive at my eye 
and he's saying, well, there's some medium between it and that medium's always there, but it's only when that medium is actualized that the color in my hand can set in motion what is actively transparent, <laughs> making it thus a able to act on my eye, even though the two things aren't touching. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure, but. I don't I, know if this is helpful. No, I think, the, I think the idea of the sound was helpful. That, yeah, there has to be some sort of, yeah, okay, go ahead. Well, no, Sax just makes the note, and maybe he's wrong about this, but it helped me at least. Aristotle mentions various things we would call phosphorescent. A glowing. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, something there even after it, it's being acted on. Like, so luminescence that is caused by the absorption of radiations and continues for a noticeable time after these radiations have stopped. So there's like, there's something still there, even though, though it's not being fully acted upon. Yeah, he's thinking of like embers when the fire is dying or who knows what he's, fireflies, I don't know. Or the thing that we can see the embers through even as it's dying. It's not even right to say see it through because yeah. you still need the light to actually be able to see it, but the, the facilitator of the light that's still there from the embers. He's thinking that a phosphorescent thing is generating its own light, right? Not... He's thinking that there's something in it that is a, that is like the sun. Fire, right? Fire, yeah. He doesn't say I, fire in the reading, but yeah, yeah, that's in that paragraph. Mm -hmm. Well, he said he said every unsold thing has heat in it, right? You have fire in you. Fire has fire in it. Every unsold thing, because he talks about there's a passage which we didn't talk about a couple weeks ago where he talks about really bizarre passage, which where he talks about how the fire has some sort of soul. And uh, I could not make heads or tails of it. But I definitely said, I'm sure he said, right, every insult thing has heat in it. I think he thinks, he's not thinking of fire in the way we are. He's thinking of it in a much more elemental way. Go, sorry, yeah, go no. He says we're, like, body is the combination of air, water, and earth. Or, sorry, mm. he, so fire, water, and earth. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right, Elijah. He's definitely thinking about it in this very elemental way. Because, I mean, he's still, he's responding to Thales and, and Heraclitus who are trying to find this, like, original Arche, right? And, like, fire seems to make a certain amount of sense. Like, you know, you encounter heat or something akin to fire, it seems, in almost anything you you run up against. Water also makes a good deal of sense. Most of the, we know this better now, but most of the world is made up of water. We're mostly comprised of water, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But that's a weird thing to say even there, right? It's like, am I mostly water? Like, what does that mean? Even from a modern scientific standpoint, I don't push myself like a sponge water comes out. I think we can say in just in general. So if we're thinking like about this account of sense perception and how it compares to what we would think of the, as the modern story of sense perception, can we just say in like, general terms what aristotle's understanding of sense perception is like is it do you think i'm right to say like there is a thing acting and a thing being acted on and there's always a medium between them and like every instance of sense perception every explanation has to be able to be mapped onto that general scheme and i mean i think he wants to link that to the ethics right like there's or to his other writings where there's like a always an extreme an extreme and a mean well, yeah, there's definitely like the contraries, right? right. It, that's where he talks about like the, the contraries. Um, as he means like negate them, but I think he says alters them, yeah. which is a kind of negation. And I think that's similar to how the, the virtues work, where there's these two poles. Right. 
So I was going to read. So in near the end of chapter 11, this is like 423B30 or so. Now the tangible things are the distinctive attributes of body as body. By distinctive attributes, I mean those that define the elements as hot, cold, dry, and moist, about which we have spoken before in the writings about the elements. And the sense organ that has the potency of touch, in which what is called the sense of touch first inheres, is that part that is potentially of one of those attributes. For perceiving is a way of being acted upon, in which what acts makes another thing, which is potentially such as it is, be of that attribute that the former has actively. For this reason, we do not perceive what is what is as hot or cold or hard or soft as we are, but what exceeds us, since the sense is a kind of mean between the contrary attributes of the thing perceived. In virtue of this, it discriminates the things perceived, for the mean has the discriminating power, since it comes to be either of two extremes in relation to the other. So my understanding of that passage is he's thinking of a sense perception as something which understands there is the extreme of hot and extreme of cold and is like uh, understanding itself as a gradation between those two extremes right does that make sense i mean that's not right the the word the word understand is is a weird one there yeah no no you're right okay that's not the right way for it but well it's like uh do you have have you guys ever watched that tv show community you know that show it's funny, right? There's a there's an episode where the guy gets into the air conditioner school and they have this room that's like perfect room temperature and he gets there and he's like, I don't feel anything, <laughs> right? That's the idea here, right? Is like, I as a human am a certain amount of warmth and cold, but I'm a mean. And if I were to right, know, that's touch, right. Yeah, touch yeah. something that was exactly the same heat as me, I wouldn't really recognize it or register it. But if it's something colder than me or hotter than me, and he right. talks so about there being... The sense ahead. needs something that exceeds us. That, uh-huh. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. For it to be a sensory experience, it has to exceed us towards one or the other of a pair of contraries. Right. Right. And we're, we are, you know, in this case, man is the measure, right? Right. Like we're this arbitrary degree temperature. And he talks about there being a humming in the ears always because of the drums and like mm-hmm. something is quieter or louder than that or something, I guess. I guess probably only louder, but but it has to be louder than that for us to register it. So is it then fair to say that his way of thinking in terms of pairs of contraries and means between them is one of the things that makes his account seem so alien to us? Like that, that like has his background kind of metaphysical picture or something? Like we just don't think that way mm-hmm. anymore, you know? I mean, in a certain sense of everything we've read, it's like the most intuitive or it's the most common mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. right? If something is hotter than substantially hotter substantially colder than me i notice it when i touch it like yeah of course but we don't, don't think that I, nature I, is organized in pairs of contraries but is he arguing that na- nature's it seems to me less metaphysical than it than you're reading it but that's okay i wouldn't I say that i have like a metaphysical myself same way I, well <laughs> i just i mean i do think he's making a claim about how nature is knowable experienceable mm-hmm. and i think that it has to work in this way that adam's describing in order for that to be the case and i i i i kind of agree with both of you it is i think it is intuitive but i mean we did have to kind of like walk ourselves to it right i mean maybe elijah you just got it right away but i didn't think about it in that way uh-huh. until you just said it so 
but I, but I also think like, yeah, Adam, you're right. It's not, we don't think of it. We don't think of nature as being constructed this way. I mean, that's the problem, right? We think of it as being constructed in some way. I don't think Aristotle would. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm kind of thinking of it. I think, did you say, I mean, we can in a way think of it as contraries, but it's also just like, okay, I have my tongue, right? And my tongue has a certain composition of saltiness and sweetness and all that. And anything that is sweeter or saltier or sourer than my tongue is going to register in a significant way. Like, I mean. Yeah, but that's just not true from a modern scientific standpoint right i have no idea i don't know anything, I know anything about modern science <laughs> i stopped at a, a, a vico i guess i don't know <laughs> uh, i stopped at vico all right all right he, he got it uh-huh. <laughs> what do you need after that giants vico, rolling in shit yeah, yeah. So. vico is the joe rogan of the enlightenment that's my uh, hot take the, for that. <laughs> after the new science, there can't be anything more new uh, than that. Uh, uh, I I don't know, Paul, but I mean, my point is, yeah, I don't know if it scientifically works that way, but I think like, it, it, I mean, we can think in terms of contraries, but it's like, okay, I'm my skin, right, is a certain, let's say temperature, right? And then if it's a little bit colder, I notice it a little bit. If it's a lot colder, I notice it a lot. If it's a little bit hotter, I notice it a little bit. It seems much more like a spectrum. And he's saying the closer you get to your status, right? The less sort of significant or registrable that is. Like if I touch something that's the exact same composition as my skin, right? It might, might not even really notice it, but it's not a qualitatively different, in ter- I mean, it's still touching me, right? But it's in terms of experience, it's a very different thing than something that is much rougher or much, much softer or whatever. Yeah, no, I know. And I think phenomenologically, that's a, yeah. fi- a totally fine description of what's going on. But I mean, this the mo- that's the problem, right? It's like modern science is not interested in the phenomena. It, it, it wants to get behind them precisely. And so the, so modern science is going to be like, no, you have taste buds. And then there are certain molecules in the things that you put in your right. mouth that have the certain flavor that registers in your brain through all of these, whatever. This, that, and the other. Yeah. Like, I mean, what Aristotle doesn't give a shit about molecules, you know? Well, so- and, and that was going to be my question is if we flip the question of like, well, what does Aristotle care about the modern science, scientific project? Well, it's not even that. It's that, that it, modern science does not think of the world as being, as having, as being conceptually organized in that way. It's like the world is much more porous to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like there are just not boundaries like that. Like in some sense, all those boundaries are artificial to like a, a materialist mind, you know? And like Aristotle is so conceptual in how he approaches nature. That seems like the most big, significant difference mm-hmm. to me. I guess, how do you, what do you mean by conceptual though? Because like, I mean, certainly science. Like the transparent. Concepts. Like the, the term, the trans, just the way he talks about the transparent. Or the way he talks about even color, you know, these are are hot and cold, or something like those. But, things- but I mean, how is how is how is it not conceptual to say that they're like waves of light or particles mm-hmm. of light? I mean, that's still no, another concept. Or am I just missing what you're saying? Yes, but they they only have even with lights, in a way, kind of yeah, like like in in a way they only have relate they only have existence or meaning or definition in relationship to other parts of nature and they're all sort of like like taste buds or something you know Mm -hmm. it's like 
you know, your taste buds are, uh, I don't know how to, how do I put this? Like, well, so let's, let's compare the Aristotelian account to the modern account. So Aristotle says, for your tongue to taste something, for your senses to engage something, it has to be both similar and different. So water has to be more moist than your tongue, but your tongue has to be the sort of thing that can get moist. <laughs> Otherwise, right, water would not be, it would not register water, right? That's a conceptual account. So yeah, it's both like and unlike. It has to have the capacity to absorb, but if it's totally like the thing is going to absorb, then, then there's no sensory interaction. Mm-hmm. The moderns would say, well, you have these receptors in your tongue. The receptors send messages to your brain and, and, and tell your brain, oh, that's spicy, basically, right? How do you compare those two? I mean, they both seem quite conceptual to me. I mean, I do think at the risk of beating a dead horse, I think Aristotle is more phenomenological, but uh, no, I thought I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm actually, now I'm thinking maybe I don't know what I meant before. <laughs> I thought I had something to say, but I'm going to, I'm going to, let me think about it for a second. I, I thought where you were going, Adam, is like modern science just doesn't see the harmony that this seems to be describing, right? It's just, it's all, like a materialist is just going to say it's all chance, like stuff happened, mm-hmm. big bang, boom, we're here. And yeah, there's a sort of order to it, but there's always a risk of it falling into disorder or into another kind of order. But Aristotle mm-hmm. just sees harmony everywhere mm-hmm. and it like must be this way and it, it will eternally be this way. Oh, so sure. I think, in, I mean, I think in that way, it's very different. Concepts like appropriateness or harmony or something. Now that's yeah. all been jettisoned for sure. But there's, I don't know. There's just a way in which like Aristotle thinks that there's a thing, the cold, right? Or the hot or the transparent or something, or like color that is, that is like almost like a, in a sense of like a species has a, has a clear and defined meaning in nature and just occurs and occurs and occurs. And I just don't, I think that the contemporary scientific picture is way more, there's just so much more interchange of molecule. You know, you just think of it, it's molecular in a way that it's just not every, nothing is molecular for Aristotle in that sense. I don't, I guess maybe I don't even know that the cold would be a, a meaningful concept at all in modern science right mm-hmm. it's like we experience something as cold because of and then, i mean this is kind of aristotle there's still in that sense it's like we are the kind of you know like something is cold to us but there's no such thing as the cold or the hot it's like mm-hmm. you know there are just things that have temperatures and they really aren't even temperatures except in the sense that we are defining them as something that's hot or cold in relationship to us but i don't know i feel like i'm just sort of saying a lot of things i don't really have a firm grasp on so I that's a, that's why we're here adam stop, stop talking. <laughs> well uh, sounds so, quixotic to me yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quixotic quest um well I, I just want to reiterate the question we were talking before we hit record our question is what is the point of reading a sort of early proto-scientific account that in many sort of let's say factual ways has been discredited and then in conceptual ways that's been jettisoned. Those are kind of two branches that are not the same. We were sort of asking, what is the point of this? And if we think about reading, you know, reading about justice or something, there's a certain way that the gap between, there's a certain way that it's like, oh, well, we haven't solved the problem of justice. And so like, we can go back to Plato and it doesn't feel like quite the same sort of jump to like read hardcore science you know, with an asterisk, right? Hardcore science that's 2,500 years old is feels like a different sort of thing than reading about ancient ethics, I think. And I, and I think, Adam, everything you were saying was sort of groping towards that question. 
Um, and I think it's a really good one, actually. What does Aristotle have to teach us if he doesn't actually understand how taste works in some in some way? Again, with all the caveats and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always a few ways to answer this question. I mean, like, first of all, historically, it's just interesting because this dude had a massive influence on tradition and i mean i think i i would argue we're still not past it completely i think we i think from like a scientific perspective of course we are but like you said in terms of ethics in terms of understanding things that are not scientifically studyable at least not in any concrete way he still is a very persuasive voice How, how does science tell us about the soul for instance right that's a question like that's like asking science to tell you what justice is. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's that, there's like the historical interest and then also just the influence that he still might have. I think that's a little bit more debatable. And a lot of people would say that I'm crazy for thinking that he's still influential, but, but also like, I just think like Adam said earlier, like he's such a keen observer of the human experience and even just like being able to model his methodology of, of doing that observation is just a really helpful way to learn how to think, you know, even if it does, if it leads him to incorrect conclusions, he's still going to get right about stuff more than most less thoughtful people are, you know? So I just think being able to, you know, again, we're like his students, right? We're mimicking the way that he thinks and trying to adopt those various strategies or, or ways of thinking to put it less, um, militaristically you know what i mean like i just think that that's i think it's always helpful to get a model put in front of you and try to like get in that mode of thinking even if you don't ultimately agree with the conclusions i think the most productive way to think about almost anything is to move back and forth between particulars and universals and to kind of let those two methods inform each other and 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 alter each other, right? I think that seems like the, yeah, that seems to me like the best method of approaching almost any problem. And almost like you have, you kind of inevitably have to do it, but there's always a temptation, I think, to get pulled to one or the other and to pretend that whichever you get, you know, the opposite of whatever one you get pulled toward doesn't exist or something, or is like less important. And it really is helpful to keep, to see how much Aristotle keeps universal universals and particulars in mind like as a parallel mm-hmm. track you know i think that's really really great when thinking about modern science i mean kind of the the thing you were articulating adam as as i understood it is is modern science doesn't know how to deal with universals and no. and it, let me say it doesn't know how to you generally know how to deal with universals there's this sort of obsession with the particulars and then when you do have scientists dealing with universals, it's clear that they've had no training in it. And it becomes these ham-fisted, you know, these Yuval Harari articles or whatever that enrage you, Adam, um, <laughs> or, you know, whatever, that sort of stuff. And so well, that's one of the things that makes it hard to talk about, because it's like you want to talk about like we we I think we understand that we, you cannot proceed without the grounding of being a perceiving thing in the first place. Right. And that informs what you're doing, you know, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. This is not, you know, you guys know this, but like one of the problems with, with science since whenever, let's say Descartes, I guess, <laughs> Just blame, is that the, the idea that you can, that you can disembody, 
yeah, you can you can just be an observing thing without you know yeah disembodied presence or whatever. How you want to put that? But again, I you know as I said, there's not a view from nowhere, and Aristotle's a key is very aware of that, and I think that's also useful to remember. Well, and once once you sort of puncture the myth of the view from nowhere, actually the hot and the cold do become meaningful categories in some way. Right. That's part of the reason I was kind of tripping myself up, you know, because it's like, <laughs> what are what are you thinking, Alex? What are you percolating? Right. The uh, the hot and the cold contraries. Uh, one of the things that I picked up in reading, of course, being a, a music person, uh, I was interested in what Aristotle had to say about sound. And I thought somewhere in his description of like the mechanism by which we hear, he talks about something that really is rather like how the ear works something striking or being agitated within the ear and that that is how the ear works by the the hairs in the ear that vibrate so that we hear sound i guess they hadn't probably done autopsies or dissections where you could get a good look at the ear but maybe they did i don't know i don't know aristotle seems pretty pretty familiar with like the inner organs of dead bodies. Yeah. He brings it up multiple times. I mean, even if you're not dissecting, if you're in ancient Greece, even if you're not dissecting bodies, you're seeing a lot of open bodies yeah. <laughs> here or there, right? Anyway. He also, he mentioned some pretty interesting things about just how closely he was observing, not just the insects being cut in half, but he had it, we didn't discuss it before, but he had a line in the previous reading about the baiting habits of sharks. It's like, what? how did he... Like, where did this information come from? Is this really did he watch this, or did someone else watch this and relate it to him? Like, how do they even observe this? Anyway, go ahead, Alex. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I'll I'll read some of this about voice. Uh, mm-hmm. It's before 420b30. So the the organ for breathing is the upper throat, and the part for the sake of which this is present is the lung. For it is by means of this part that land animals have more warmth than other animals. Breath is needed for the region about the heart primarily. Hence, the air must go inside by being breathed. And so the voice is the striking against the so-called windpipe of the air that has been breathed in by the action of the soul in these parts. For not every sound of an animal is a voice, as was said for it is also possible to make a noise with the tongue or in the way people do when they cough but it is necessary for the part that causes the striking to have soul in it and some sort of imagination with it since the voice is some sort of sound that is capable of carrying a meaning and it is not like a cough a striking by the air that is breathed in. But by means of this, the animal makes the air in the windpipe strike against the windpipe. A sign of this is the inability to speak when one is inhaling or exhaling rather than holding air in. Since the one who holds air in causes motion with it, it is also clear why fish are without voice since they have no windpipes. They do not have this part because they do not take in air or breathe. Why they do not is another story. (laughs) That's great. Now, 
why the fish are without voice i couldn't help thinking of a reference to the, the icelandic novelist haldor laxness he actually has a book titled the fish can sing <laughs> i'm interested in reading it some someday soon so i did i thought that was funny the fish are without voice i'm like ah but not in modern literature mr aristotle uh it's a well-known fact that Aristotle has not read modern literature. <laughs> well, this 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 thing with the voice, this little parenthetical definition, is really interesting because it's actually an example of what we were talking about, right? But it's necessary for the part that causes the striking to have the soul in it and some sort of imagination with it, since the voice is some sort of sound that is capable of carrying a meaning. So it's this mm -hmm. moment he's going through the nitty-gritty. This is how you breathe, blah blah blah, and like, oh, by the way, like voice, this thing, this abstract concept voice mm -hmm. has to do with meaning all other sounds are not voice and that's a sort of mm -hmm. i don't know I, like it's like it's it's a pretty i mean it's not simplistic exactly but it's not like a totally shocking definition but there's this sort of pleasure and just like like i'll be thinking about that i think for you know a couple of weeks from now i'm just going to think about oh yeah that voice voice is the thing that has to do with meaning all other sounds are not voice i don't know it's just a really i mean i think it's an example of what you were we were sort of trying to get at earlier I mean, the I think modern, there's, yeah, there is like an intuition that of that speaking is different than other sounds, right? And I think that that is something that does not strike us as outdated or outmoded, or, mm -hmm. right? Like that still feels like a genuine intuition that we can think about and think care and think about carefully, and even think about it in, in conjunction with contemporary science. I, I would say, yeah. But he does it. I mean, I think what I was trying to get at is he kind of switches back and forth so effortless, effortlessly yeah, yeah, sure, in a way sure. that we can't. We're, we're a little too self-conscious to do anymore, probably to our detriment. Yeah, sure. But I, I think that like, you know, a, a committed materialist will ultimately have to say that there's no difference between the sound coming out of my windpipe and the wind. Right. Or like, cough. Right. Or, yeah. Or whatever. And I just think Aristotle. Well, that's why, they, say, that's why they're ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like Aristotle, like people like to, there's people get excited about this book. I think, you know, contemporary thinkers do because it's not religious or it's, mm -hmm. it's pre-Christian, but mm -hmm. it's like not materialist either. It seems to represent some in other- a In a reductive way, at least. Yeah, some or other way yeah, of thinking about nature. I don't have the- <laughs> There's that long, there's that long note from- sacks at the end of this chapter where he's like he's like people try to reduce aristotle to a materialist and they try to reduce him to an idealist but this is just an, a lack of intellectual ability on the interpreter and i was yeah, like yeah. that is yeah. so scathing and awesome <laughs> yeah. his whole introduction is essentially like an explication of how aristotle is neither one of those two things and how he gives you a different way to think about nature and animals you know the motion of animals and the life man I think you'd have to be a pretty dense reader to try to pigeonhole him into one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's so silly. I mean, there's so much going on back and forth about this. Like, clearly the body matters, but also guess what? The soul matters. The body doesn't move without the soul. Right. Just starting from that premise alone, how are you a materialist or an idealist? Right. Well, and this, the, I think that's right, Paul. And this, the switch between the particulars and the universal, I mean... Right, the whole Middle Ages project with Aristotle was to systematize him, and like that movement doesn't really lend itself to a system exactly. 
or or when you systematize it you lose something you lose the motion of it in some way because are you saying because system like necessarily is reductive yeah well i'm sort of working it out i think i might say something like it's static in a way that aristotle doesn't want to be static but as i've said many times before right it seems to me that greek philosophy is born in wonder and uh modern philosophy is born out of fear of being tricked and <laughs> uh that that fear of being tricked really forces you to try to pin things down in a way that has its serious limitations fear of being tricked the skeptic right mm-hmm. the one who never gets tricked yeah, that's they right. They don't trust anything. <laughs> that's right. Just Chesterton, right? The skeptic can't do anything ultimately. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. Maybe we can jam on this for a few minutes before we close up. I mean, do you find any skepticism in this book? And and that's, I mean, that's sort of, if we were to think about modern science, right? Basic ideas like modern scientist is great because he's skept- he or she is skeptical about everything. They test everything. And that's like sort of their virtue. We have here, you know, the closest thing to a proto-scientist that Greece produced. Do you find skepticism here? And and if you don't, do you think he would benefit from having some skepticism? What and what do you mean by skepticism there? <sighs> I don't know. Interpret it. It's like the testing want. of claims against evidence, or yeah, I don't know. That's, not, that's not what I. Okay, because yeah, I do yeah. see. I do see some. I I you know I think he is. He is attempting to refute things that his predecessors have said that he doesn't agree with, both mm-hmm. by logic, but also by just saying, here are observations I've made that don't fit within Empedocles' vision of reality, right? Right. So, I mean, I don't know that I call it a skepticism exactly, but I think it aligns with that scientific mindset you're, you're yeah, describing. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, I call it right. skeptic. I wouldn't call it skepticism either. Because I, I think a skeptic, at least in the way that I'm thinking about is, is like full th- thoroughgoing skepticism where like the world itself is not trustworthy. We are always being deceived by our mm-hmm. perceptions, you know, like I think Descartes like the proto is the easiest example. Cause he's just like, you know, even like my perceptions of another human being are not, you know, mm-hmm. are not trustworthy. And I don't, I don't see any of that with Aristotle. It just seems like, I'm in a world, it's a weird place, lots of stuff's going on, but mm-hmm. I have all of these capacities that allow me to make sense of it as long as I'm, you know, dutiful and <laughs> vigilant in my methodology. And yeah. here, here we go. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not that it's a, it's an easy task by any stretch, but it is, it is one that is very much, you can carry through with it. Well, he definitely we- doesn't seem to doubt his his perceptions right that's one Mm -hmm. thing he does he takes his perceptions for granted yeah and i I was going to say we've been thinking about descartes but i'm also thinking of the the really nice uh reading that arendt does of the telescope it's in the human condition and she essentially says like it's the most important event of the last thousand years because it did two things right it told you your senses are lying to you all day every day right the sun is not moving around you and it said human reason couldn't figure this out, but a tool could, right? And so it made reason subservient to a tool or techne or whatever technology. And I mean, yeah, she really makes a lot of hay. And I think pretty convincingly so that that shifted the whole, that shaped the whole modern project in really deep, profound ways. And there's no hint of that kind of skepticism, which is I think kind of skepticism Paul was talking about here. 
So there, there, there's, there's a faith in his method and a, and a skepticism vis-a-vis simplistic or a skepticism vis-a-vis explanations that don't account for all of experience, which is different, totally different, I think. Yeah. Well, I think his method can adapt to those new facts. You know? like, I don't think his method, I think his method can adapt to a world of telescopes and microscopes. Because of what we were saying before, yeah. About- but I, but I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right, Adam. Like, like Copernicus seems to be convinced that he's just a more true Aristotelian than Aristotle, or at least his followers. But I think that a rent point is really nice, though, right? Because I don't know how. Like maybe the methodology could stay intact, but I don't know if the spirit of the methodology mm-hmm. could stay intact once you have to doubt your senses at any given moment like that that fundamental thing that the sun is not going around us that i think that would really be a problem for aristotle at least for his but you still have to use them right for sure but but you but you have to use them in a in a in a with the technology attached to it right like your senses are not enough that's true well, and I think, I don't know that Arendt uses this language, but definitely the sense in that passage, as I remember, is it's it's a loss of innocence, right? What do you do mm-hmm. after a loss of innocence? <laughs> Which is, yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, right, the history Sounds of thought. Skeptical. It, yeah, right. the history of thought in a way is like a progressive loss of innocences <laughs> about mm-hmm. various things. Yeah. which is complicated. It's complicated in your personal life, too, <laughs> to lose your innocence in this way or that. But she also, you know, she makes the point in that reading as well that that um, you have there, there's a kind of reverse effect there and that the more complicated the technology becomes that we use to look into nature, the more of our selves, our minds and our sense perceptions we're building into the technology before we, you know what I mean? Like upfront. So mm. it's like, in that sense, we're actually multiplying the amount of humanness that's like embedded in our technology before we even get around to observing nature with it. Because it requires, it's like such an, you know, the electron microscope represents an accretion and culmination of so many human disciplines, you know, that are still ultimately based on human senses. Right. But if you're, it's like, it's like an electron microscope is like a bureaucratic project. You know, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not even a tool. It's like a, it's like a social function and you know so much more than, anyway, go ahead. But, but I, I agree. And I don't remember that part as well, but it's also the case like for all intents and purposes, something like the Hadron Collider is essentially magic to me. Right. And basically it's magic to everyone, that's the it's point. Magic it, to it, everyone. it becomes magic to all people. It's, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's not like so, you're lo- fucking looking at anything. It's like, you're seeing a set of predictions on a computer screen and then a set of results on a computer screen that are expressed numerically. And there's a gap between them. And what that means to you is like requires so much pre-mediation you know what i mean like, yeah well so my point is it doesn't, doesn't something like the hadron collider or whatever electron telescope doesn't that actually reify the sort of hierarchy wherein the uh technology is is king over the human senses or human reason unaided doesn't that actually just reify the problem yeah well that's because yeah. aristotle's whole method is contingent on i can observe and my observe observations are trustworthy for making claims about the universal and I think what Paul was saying, and I agree, is that that's, it is a significant, not even necessarily a bad thing, but it just is a significant thing you have to deal with if you're a thinker after 1500. 
and and the question uh, we should definitely pick this up next week no is, no that's not what yeah. I, mean. I mean that like the danger it becomes a danger of solipsism because it's mm-hmm. like in order to get a truer vision of reality it requires that we are in you know in embedding more of our mind into whatever yeah. techni- and technology we're using and it just seems like a problem that yeah anyway so, yeah so, yeah no that's right and that's also a question of what does Aristotle's method look like in that world? Yeah. I mean, I think my answer is always just like really separate science from philosophy at the end of the day. And like, I think there's probably, there's probably something cheating about that. Like, I don't think it's that easy. Like obviously science informs philosophy and I think philosophy at least used to inform science, but at the end of the day, like they are just concerned with, very different things you know at least in terms of like the philosophy i guess i'm interested in. obviously there's the philosophy of science but i just think like in terms of how we're trying to describe the human experience you just kind of have to leave those kinds of things to the side you know and like i think it's you can say truly that the sun goes around us you know obviously like science is like no it doesn't and it's like well yeah okay sure but like as i experience the world it does you know mm-hmm. And that, that is naive. I admit that, but I think there's a certain virtue to na- that kind of naivety. I do think it's a little bit lazy, but I mean, I'm not I'm well, willing to work out the, the details. <laughs> we at least had to be able to get from that perception to like, we had to begin there to get to what we think now. Right. We could never have begun at the sun. The earth revolves around the sun at, you know, 160,000 miles. But I guess that's the problem, though, right, is like we almost do begin the other way. Like we're told from such a young age that we revolve around the sun. And so it's like we're I mean, I think to Arendt's point, like we're that innocence of just being able to trust our perceptions is gone. It's like taken from us before we're even aware Mm -hmm. that we call these things perceptions, you know. Right. And part of part of that is what you were talking about earlier, Adam, where it's like, well, the hot and the cold aren't real. The molecules bumping into each other are real. Like, you know, right. your experiences. I mean, and this is, we've tread this ground many times, but I do think it's interesting to talk about it through the lens of Aristotle. Yeah. 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 Like you can't even, uh, you can't even tell children to like, look at how the sun moves because you're not supposed to stare at the sun and nobody <laughs> wants to get protective services called on them. <laughs> I had the kids stare at the sun. No, I didn't really mean for them to stare at the sun. You got to get those special glasses, you know, that you they gave you in school when there was going to be like a partial eclipse. <laughs> yes. Card cardboard. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for joining us on this quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. Please join us again next week when we will be reading book Something. three of Aristotle's De Anima. I am assuming we are going to read chapters one through six. First half. First First half. half. Let's say one through seven. Yes, chapters one one through seven of book three of Aristotle's (laughs) Day Anima in translation by Joe Sachs. Paul? Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good Good night. night. Good night. Nailed um, it. <laughs> that was a good conversation. Yeah, that the was ending fun. is always the worst. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs>